Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome back to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. And I'm Tim Cronin. Today we're going to talk about this is the beginning of a number of episodes about, I guess we're lo- loosely calling this the anatomy of a product liability suit. John, maybe it's good to start out. You've handled a lot of product liability suits at your law firm. Could you just sketch out the range of the types of products that might be involved in these sorts of suits? Just to get, I, get I mean, our, literally everything a, a from to a, to a to Z. Yeah, A to Z. I've been doing product work for my entire career on the defense side for the first four or five years and on the plaintiff side since then. And I still do. I would say the majority of what I do today is product related. It can be anything from a household appliance to a tire to a wheel to to glass in an automobile, recreational equipment, boats, water skis, jet skis, playground equipment. Any kind of electronic equipment that can oftentimes those are hospital beds. We've had hospital fire bed cases. We've had rollover cases, roof cases, automotive products, scaffolding. It's all around you everywhere. And I, I, this is probably a good point to start talking about how do you find them? I, I actually, I did I a seminar. A lot of product cases, John, get missed. I gave a seminar years ago. This was 20, 20, 30 years ago, maybe 20 years ago. And it was about product liability cases. And you know what the title of it was? Product liability, what are you missing? Yeah. And the idea was that there are so many instances where attorneys who are handling an auto crash, for instance, they're not looking at a product liability aspect of that case that may be there. Somebody that workers' comp is a huge a huge area. Comp, Social Security disability. Yep. We always consider whether the product was involved and there might be a case. And like auto accident cases, if there was a fire in the car, you should definitely look into that. Airbag issues. There's all kinds of different. And, and here's the thing, too. I think a lay, from the layperson's standpoint, not the attorney view, um, Although a lot of attorneys, um, you know, miss the opportunity to to look into or investigate a product case, but from a layperson standpoint, somebody rolls their car over, or crashes into a tree, or rear ends somebody. I mean, they're not thinking about anything other than the accident. That's what they're thinking about. I, the example is we we've handled underride cases with the uh, rear impact guards on the back of trailers, and those are all accidents where, for the most part. The person you're representing drove into the back of a truck. Yeah. And a lot of people aren't looking at that as a potential product case. Here's something to keep in mind, too, is you can evaluate whether there was a product liability claim there, whether the product failed or didn't didn't work the way it was supposed to work or designed to work or poorly designed. But the other thing, too, is product cases are tremendously complex, complex expensive tests. resources. So it might not be worth right. And in other words, juice might not be worth the squeeze. Right. If you have a a case where there's an automobile case and somebody is injured, the injury isn't that severe or serious, there's plenty of coverage. Even though there might be a potential product case, it's it's likely not worth you pursuing it. Because the discovery is so intensive and you're going to have to pay so much for experts and you're looking at the history of the entire product life and all that stuff. You know, this, yeah, I agree. What we're talking about is a specific application of a thing that I often think about the world does not come pre-labeled with legal labels, mm. but doesn't. there's no sign that lights up and say, this is an important thing you need to consider. It, a lot of what we do is to have to recognize what matters and what it is called, and then it tips you into a whole area of 
how to deal with the problem. So with the product liability case, it, there's no, in the, in the accident report, it doesn't say this is a potential product liability case. Yeah. It's, it's worthy of an entire discussion that we're about to have about how to recognize these things for what they are or what they could be. And really, especially with comp, I thought, because in comp, it's a no-fault system and you're capped at what you can get. I've, I have a lot of friends that are comp lawyers when I've been talking to them about what happened and then the discussion leads to, now, hold on, you're like, you're going to be dealing with a comp lien, sure, but it may be the only way for that client to possibly get full compensation. Yeah, and, for, and the other thing, too, going into the discussion, your theories in a product liability case, it might be a design claim, meaning it worked the way they intended it to work, but they just didn't design it. If a car rolls over and the roof crushes in and somebody as a result is paralyzed, they may have followed their own standards. They certainly designed it the way they wanted to, but it just was a shitty design. On the other hand, there can be manufacturing defects. We've had car cases where the welds weren't good. Yeah. In other words, the car- It wasn't built to right. specs, basically. It, it wasn't built the way it was supposed to be built. Something's missing. It's a bad weld. There's an. I actually had an elevator case years ago where there was a safety button on the elevator, a safety button on the top of the car that service workers used, and there was an actual a part that was on top of it that was the wrong part. It wasn't put together the right way, and what had ha happened was the as a result that when you push the button, the emergency button to stop the elevator car didn't work. And that was because of the plate that they had put over the top of the device. It had impeded the button from going down. And it, was, it actually had to do with the slot that the button went through, whether it was an oval or whether it was a circle. It was supposed to be an oval, it was a circle, and the actual lever got caught up on it. I took the corporate rep deposition and asked the person who was involved in the design, was this the part that was supposed to be on it? And he just looked at me and said, no. We had the, and it called for a completely different part. In which case, it's defective and unreasonably dangerous at the time of sale because that part wasn't on. Yeah. Defective design claims, defective manufacturing claims, or defective because of a failure to warn are the three main. Yeah, and warning, we see a lot of warning, I mean, tons of warning type cases, how you're handling a product, how you're using a product. Going into a product case, you need to be looking for, I start out by did the product operate the way you would expect it to operate. And you have to look at whether it was being used in its reasonably anticipated use, in, in regardless of the jurisdiction. Yeah, and, and some, even if it's a reasonably anticipated misuse, yeah, it'll be a claim. it can still be a claim. What can we say at the get-go about product cases? We already said it. They're very complex. They're discovery intensive. But here's the difference, I think, from a product liability case and most other cases. In a hospital case, a surgery, your concern is what happened during an hour-long surgery or a 15-minute procedure. In an auto accident, your focus might be on what happened over a period of 12 seconds or 10 seconds or 15 seconds. But in a product liability case, when you're looking closely at, you're alleging that the design of this product was, was defective, it was unreasonably dangerous, or the warning or the manufacturer, You've got to examine part of your case is this in the entire life of this product. A product is, is like a, I compare it to a person. The product didn't just come into existence and somebody sitting around a table said, hey, let's throw these parts together and see what it looks like. It had a planning stage, a design stage, a concept stage, a testing yeah. stage. All of the development right. steps. The, all of the developmental steps. And guess what? 
There are all kinds of different individuals, people involved in each step, people involved in the design, the marketing, the sale, the testing, and you really need to get into all of that. And I would say this, John, it's not just the development of that particular model. There's often earlier models, predecessor models, and predecessor products that you might need to get into because they had the same feature that's at issue in your case. So you need to go back to the development and testing of other models by that company to see if they knew before they even started the development of this one about a particular problem and then didn't address it during the de development of this model. The other thing that's very unique and helpful in product liability cases, not just that a product has a life, it's because it does have a life of its own. But the other thing is there's no aspect of that product, I don't care what it is, if it's an office chair, some of the chairs we're sitting in, or the mics that we're using, or an electric hospital, adjustable hospital bed, there is no component part of that product that hasn't been thought through very carefully by some person designing it. And part of that analysis, guess what? It involves safety, or it should, and it also involves cost. Yeah. And every aspect of that product, every part, every component, whether it's a guard on a press punch machine, it has to do with the cost. They did an analysis as to what it would have cost them to make it safer. An actuarial in it. So you're looking at profits over safety more in a product case than almost any other type of case, in my opinion. And, and you need to be doing it at every aspect of the development and continuation of and the product. And i tell you another thing that's unique in a product case is when you're dealing with a product, it's not the only one out there. It's not unique. If that product is genuinely defective, you, you probably should have dozens, maybe even hundreds of other similar incident, incidents or failures. If there's 150,000 products or 2 million of them out there, and the failure in your case is the only time it's ever happened, you might be barking up the wrong tree. So, Tim, you mentioned this earlier or just when we got started, but so what does an attorney who doesn't do product stuff, what should they be on the lookout for to be able to identify a product case when it's in front of them and maybe they're not seeing it? I think if there's any kind of product that in any way is involved in the client's injury, if you're not familiar with handling product cases, you should call an attorney who handles product cases because they may already have handled similar types of cases or just be more astute at recognizing whether it might be a product claim. In other words, just because there may be one other cause for the injury, if a product contributed in any way, it should still be investigated. And what are some examples in the workers' comp area? I've seen some a lot of cases involving guarding of machines, right? Like workers who are on a line working with machines and a failure to guard those machines. Uh, chemical exposure. You, you and I have both handled cases where our, the clients are dealing with some kind of electric box or something like that, and they got electrocuted by it. And yes, there's a comp claim, but there's also a product claim. So for machines, there are guarding type issues for electrical exposure to electrical current. There's right. usually some kind of method to lock out and tag out to prevent the person from being exposed to it. Any kind of equipment they're dealing with, whether that's a forklift or any other type of equipment they might be dealing with. And those are all generally in the work environment, ladders, yeah. scaffolding, yeah. things of We've that. We've all of those types of cases. And then moving away from the workers' comp, you look at auto and truck accidents. Yeah. And like you said, underride, even if you run into the back of a truck, uh, that one's usually pretty, you should know if you have a potential underride claim because the injury to the plaintiff is what? Death. Decapitation. Decapitation. Yeah. Front of the vehicle goes under the back of the truck. With, or with, if the person you... burned alive in the car, even if they caused the accident, you should be looking at whether 
there was some kind of design in the engine to cause the engine fire or there's lots of different aspects. To For instance, fire a case. fire case, what I what my general rule of thumb is, you know, no one should ever die in a post-collision fire. If the crash is survivable, no one in the vehicle should ever die from a post-collision fire. Um, and so I, I would say as a as a rule of thumb, if you've got a case where a car crashes and it caught on fire, then... And with more and more technology that we have, there's always new different types of avenues to pursue. For example, crash avoidance technology is becoming far more common. So even if there, there weren't burn injuries, but and your client went off the road and crashed or hit somebody else, it's possible that crash avoidance technology would have prevented that from happening. Yeah, and I think, as we said, anytime there's a serious devastating injury, look at a possible, was a product involved, a vehicle, a truck, if a product's involved, have it looked at. And keep in mind that in most jurisdictions, I know in the ones we practice in most, but in almost all jurisdictions, there doesn't have to be negligence. There's strict liability for product liability claims and negligence claims should be brought as well because it may allow you to get more evidence in that you want to get in. But strict liability means if it wasn't a defective and unreasonably dangerous condition at the time it was sold and it caused an injury, you win. You don't have to prove someone was negligent. Meaning no notice, no knowledge. Corporate rep can literally say we had no idea about this. And that's not the, but the focus isn't on the conduct of the manufacturer. The focus in a strict product claim is on the product, not the manufacturer or the designer of the product. And then you focus in all the ways we're going to talk about on things like profits over safety and profit motive or notice of the defect for your punitive damages claim and for your negligence claim. John and Tim, at this point, could we carve out to what extent is the potential plaintiff's conduct or misuse relevant? At what point does that become something that interferes with bringing these kinds of cases? That's a great question. Missouri has a case about that, and I think most jurisdictions do as well, that if there is foreseeable misuse, even if the plaintiff misused the product, if it's misusing it in a foreseeable way, it is irrelevant whether they misuse the product. In other words, a plaintiff causing a crash in a car and then the airbag not going off or it's starting a fire, if it's just against the product defended, that evidence is irrelevant and should not even be admissible. So you're going to have that fight oftentimes where the defendant is trying to put fault on the plaintiff and you need to keep this in mind while you're taking people's depots and developing your evidence because you're going to have a motion in limine about keeping out the cause of the incident, right? We have that fight almost every time. It's the difference between the cause of the underlying crash and the cause of the injuries. Correct. Correct. And so you're going to fight about that throughout the whole case, and you just need to keep that in mind from beginning to end because you are going to be at the pretrial talking to the judge about what evidence can come in about your client's own conduct and and how they use the product and contributing to cause their injuries. And another thing that, that is a little bit, makes it a little more, a lot more complex is the causation aspects. So in other words, if you have a crash where somebody drove into a tree and the airbag didn't go off, okay, then the issue becomes, okay, what would the injuries have been if the airbag had gone off? I'll give you, give you another example. Your client's in a vehicle and it rolls over and there is a roof crush and they have a spinal injury and they're paralyzed, which we, we see that a lot with roof crush where the, the cervical spine is fractured 
It's usually a quadriplegic type injury. And then the issue becomes, okay, what would it have happened anyway, even if the roof had crushed two inches versus eight inches? We've tried cases over that where we're saying the roof should have been stronger, and you're looking at whether the, there are issues about whether the person came off the seat and hit the roof or whether the roof came in and crushed the, the did the damage during the roll. But in any event... Uh, you, d- you certainly need to be looking at and considering what, if, in whether you even bring the case, though, whether your client or anyone else after sale tampered with or modified the product so, such that it's not in the condition it was at the time of sale. Because if me, your client did that and it changed partic- the particular feature you're complaining of, you don't have a case. Let me follow up one more time. So you have a motion to eliminate. You can't, the other the, the defendant cannot talk about the misbehavior or misconduct of the, the plaintiff, but then the jury can kill you in deliberations unless you let the jury know to some extent That's that true. it would not be inappropriate. So how do, how do you deal with that? You want it. Let them know this is what the case is really about. You don't want the, the defendant poisoning it. With, Eric, that's, that's, a, that's a great question, and we, we have had that issue come up in trials. In T-bone accidents right. and auto cases. And, and we have had that internal debate. We have been successful arguing both in state and federal court that the cause of the accident doesn't come in. And I think you're exactly right. We had a case where we had a client who drove through an intersection, was hit, vehicle rolls over, roof crushes, terrible injuries. And it, the jury is wondering what happened. And whether it's your client who T-boned the other one or someone else, they're thinking, is this the fault of somebody in the accident? Yeah. Not the- I think after, as of right now today, I think you may be better off actually letting the jury know what was the cause of the accident and that it's not to be considered when, in a product case. It's not relevant. However, because the, look, and I'm, this is not to disparage defense counsel, it's going to come out. It, for example, in your case, despite winning those motions, counsel at one point used the phrase T-bone as about right. how the accident happened, yeah. which implies definite fault of somebody. Yeah, and I'm not stating I'm not stating a, a clear, bright line rule that in every case yeah. you should let it come in. I think it depends in large part what was the underlying conduct, right? Yeah. If there's drinking involved maybe or drugs involved or some impairment, maybe that's a situation where, you know, you want to keep it out. Okay, if it's somebody driving through an intersection and they fail to see a stop sign or a yield sign because the sun's in their eyes, maybe it's a little bit different. You probably need to get into it. Because the jury's going to be speculating and thinking about it. And so it's going to be out there. They're going to be talking about it. If you say the lawyers can't talk about it in front of the jury, then you're missing the opportunity to explain to them that is not relevant to these claims. And you may talk about it, but you can't consider it. Yeah, and there there are all kinds of cases that I can think of where you're talking about modifying the, 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 your client's um, conduct or the plaintiff's conduct where they've uh, modified it to um, override a safety guard, okay, or override some safety component of the equipment. But, but my whole point is it may get to the point where the conduct is so uh, troublesome that you might consider not even pursuing the claim. Yeah. And there's in most states, there's specific affirmative defenses that you can plead that might your client's conduct might directly be relevant to an affirmative defense. So you need to look at the law. There's usually a statute in every state. How many cases have you seen, Tim, involving a guard, a a, a machine guard that was removed by the employer? I've seen dozens of them. Yeah. Where the machine comes in, it's got a safety guard on it. The manufacturer put it on. And for whatever reason, Maybe it falls off. Maybe they took it off, but it's been there for a while. The guard's no longer on it, and they continue to use it. 
Yeah, and the employer can't be sued because their the exclusive remedy is through comp, and the defendant in that case can argue that it is the exclusive fault of a third party being the employer. And I don't think you're ever gonna you're gonna win that case most times. I think getting back to what we were saying in the beginning, that these you know you shouldn't undertake these cases lightly. If you're going to pursue a product liability case, you're going to spend a whole lot more time and resources on that case than almost any other case, even a medical mal- a complex medical malpractice case. But always be thinking about if there's another cause, how much did the condition of the product enhance the injury? Because a lot of them are enhanced injury cases. The client might have been hurt, but not hurt nearly as bad. So let's talk about the importance of discovery. It determines the case outcome. It, in more so than in any other case... The fight and the value of your case from the plaintiff's perspective will be determined by the documents you get. You have to be vigilant and out, like outrageously relentless, in my opinion, in the pursuit of documents. And the thing, too, in these types of cases, all of the relevant information is in the exclusive possession of the defendant, and it's not online necessarily. It's not on an instruction on the side of the product. We're talking about testing documentation, design documentation. All of the notice stuff. Other incidents you can get from different sources like government agencies, and we'll talk about that, but the vast majority of the information you need is from the defendant. In a lot of these cases, you're going to be dealing with a big, sophisticated company with very good lawyers on the other side, and you are going to be fighting for every scratching and clawing for everything. Yeah, the good news is they keep records. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like they just throw stuff in a box and put it in the corner, but if you're going to be looking in discovery for design information, manufacturing information, testing information, marketing information, even post-sale information because how the product ends up operating out in the market when people are using right. it, performs, that's relevant to whether or not it was designed properly in the beginning. Tim, how often... Do you have this feeling you asked for something, you crafted your discovery with great care, and then you're not getting back what you think you ought to be getting back. Oh, and just every time in a product. And I'm, I just, I'm, I'm not looking for <laughs> details. Right I'll go one further and tell you, I, I you can, you never have all of the documents. I don't care what you do. I don't care how many orders the court yeah. puts out there. It's the same rule in MedMal. You never have all the medical records. Yeah, you never have all the documents. And I've seen so many instances where we ask for something, testing, and and they say they don't have it. And then we keep pursuing questions and depositions, and it gets to the point where they look worse because they don't have it, and all of a sudden it appears. We get orders repeatedly about how they should get it, and they, they say on the record they don't have it. And then corporate rep depositions, we start asking somebody under oath a bunch of questions, and we that's when we figure out exactly what it's called, and we don't have it. And even then, sometimes we, we don't get it. Yeah, it's really a struggle, but it's the game of objecting, holding information back, not producing it, and running out the clock time-wise. A lot of times we get discovery responses back, and we're used to seeing these typical objections, right, like overly burdensome. And you really cannot allow that because you don't know what they're not giving you. And like we said, they have all the information usually in these product cases. If there is any kind of objection before an answer, you need to take up the objection and, and have it stricken to make sure there's nothing being with them. Let me go one, one step further. Okay, burdensome. I've seen that a lot. Yeah. What Did you ever do discovery on the objection then? Well, yeah, yeah. No, I, you know what, Eric, that's a great point. I, a, a good thing to do, and we do it all the time, is we will take depositions of witnesses 
uh, asking them questions about what is available, how it's kept, where it's kept, or is it on a computer? Yeah. And, and we'll do that so that when we go to argue the motion, for instance, if you just send some written discovery to a, an autom automobile manufacturer and they say it's burdensome, it's overly broad, and you're up in front of the judge arguing it, you don't know anything about what they have, how it's kept, how it's stored, and you really have nothing to say. What can you say? They're the ones with the information. And you have to turn it, flip it on. And so they have the burden to prove it's burdensome, and they it's just a lawyer saying. For, I'll give you a good example. If we want other incidents, other similar incidents. I always love the burdensome to other incidents one because it's like, it's burdensome because there's so many. There's so many we can't so keep track so of. it's highly relevant to prove our yeah. claim. It's burdensome. That <laughs> yeah. What, for instance, what we'll do is go in and we'll, in a corporate rep deposition, some of the... Um, specific information we want is, you know, what is, we all the policies and procedures regarding testing, for instance, all the documents that are generated, what they're called, how they're kept, who keeps them, are they accessible? And what we'll do is we'll go through a deposition and ask somebody, when testing is done, what documents are generated? What are they called? Who has them? And if you wanted them, how would you get them? I would go on the computer. I would log in and you can press a button and they all print out for you. The same way with other accidents, for instance, involving a product. Do you have a uh, process and procedure for how you record those? Yes. What documentation is created? Where are they right. accessible? And we've had, we do that routinely before we go up and argue the objections to the document request so that when we go up there, we can say, Judge, we asked their corporate rep, and he's telling us that these things, he can have them to us in 10 minutes. Get on the computer, you print them out, here's what they're called, they keep them. And those arguments just go by the wayside. Now, that still doesn't mean you get all of them, but yeah. at least you get the you get a good ruling on the objection. I recently settled a case, and my threat that I think provoked the settlement was I wanted to have a simultaneous request for production where they produced the computer system and then a witness who would sit at the computer to operate it at the same time. <laughs> but I think I had some good arguments for the judge to say we ought to do the, both at the same time. Give yeah. us a computer system and, and a person to sit there and I will depose them, you're hitting what button and what does this do when you do this key combination. Have you ever done something like that or have you gotten to the point where you're just not trusting? I've got close enough to the person who's actually in charge of in inputting the information on the system and creating the document and have taken their deposition and they're able to say, yes, I print these out all the time, I can access them, it will take me 15 seconds here's and I can print out, here's, right. here's where they're saved, here's what it is. Not only is it important to get this, all of this development information, the testing, the prior incidents, but it, it, in, in almost every product case for me personally in the last 30-something years, it's been a battle. It's been a battle to get information that's clearly relevant. It's not one of these things where let's look at the information and, and then go try the case. It really, the battle is getting the information and it is a fight. And part of it too is and you really don't know what their documents are called. They're sitting on everything, and you don't know anything about their process, their procedure, what's generated, where it's kept, who keeps it. But those are all things that you need to build the you need to build a foundation for all of that before you get into the battle of whether or not you're entitled to the documents you're asking for. And this is a big part of why venue is so incredibly important because of the rulings you're going to potentially get about the information you need because it's getting harder, Eric. It's getting harder in today's court system to get the information we need. Some of the rules of discovery have changed. It used to be reasonably calculated to lead to the discovery of admissible evidence. Now there's like a balancing test as part of that, right? Yeah. Comparing it to the potential value of the case. And we're sitting there going, we think the case is very valuable. 
and the other side's going, I don't think the case is worth anything. And then that gets put on the court. And so who you're asking the inf to issue an order to give you that information is important. So you need to consider your venue very carefully. And we're not even suggesting that the defendant or, or the attorney is in some way trying to obstruct. It may just be that no one really knows and no one cares over there. Yeah. You're trying to get them to care enough to investigate their and, own system and records. And there's nothing wrong with they're representing a client. And if they're using the rules of, dis of, of the rules of procedure to object and prevent potentially damaging information of their client from getting to the other side, they're doing their job. We just have to be relentless on our side and hang it up. I will give you an example on, on the flip side. And I've got a product case pending right now where we had the identical case against the same defendant pending in another jurisdiction. Yeah. And we fought that case for years, got a, a bunch of uh, documents and information through multiple you know, motions to compel with the court and orders to produce. So that case is resolved. We get another very identical case. We file it in a different lawyer. jurisdiction, different lawyer. We make the same request. Now, keep in mind, we have boxes in our, we, got, we have the documents in our possession that we're asking for, but they're under protective order. And the defendant, the attorney in that case, in the second case, won't agree to allow us to use the same documents. And, and get this, I appeared in a, and they actually made the argument that the documents that we already have, they produced them to us, to our office in another case, that it was overly burdensome and overly, it, was, it was overly burdensome for them to locate and, and produce yeah. those documents. And I said, you're and not relevant. Right. Like, well, I said, your honor, we already have them. They're in a box sitting in my office. We just need an order expanding the protective order that they can be used right. in this yeah. case. Right. So it would it's, be too burdensome for them to right. respond to a request for admission. Yeah. The real is, well, I, I said, I said, I had told the court, we don't even need them to give them to us. We just need permission to use them. You ever seen the movie Liar with Jim Carrey? Yeah. I, my favorite scene from it, it, the real objection is objection. It's devastating to my case. <laughs> so it's pretty clear. I, I'm really glad we're having this, this, this discussion. There, it's clear that the 80-20 rule the discovery battle is the 80. That's where all- It's all about discovery, Eric. It is all about discovery in product cases. All about written, like more, much more about written discovery and getting the documents in product cases than it is in other types. It's not it, It's not like you have independent eyewitnesses, okay? What did you see when they were testing this product? <laughs> or who was there in the design, the first design meeting? It's the all of the information that is critical to your case is 100% in the exclusive. The only place you can get it is from the defendant. That's the only place you can get it. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. This has been part one of the anatomy of a product liability case. This is Eric Veith. I'm Tim Cronin. I'm John Simon. We'll see you next time. The Jury is Out is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm. At the Simon Law Firm PC, we believe in the power of pooling resources in order to create powerful results. We often lend our trial skills and experience to lawyers around the country to achieve better results for their clients. Our attorneys welcome the opportunity to work with you on your case, offering vast resources, seasoned litigators, and a sterling reputation. You can contact us at 314-241-2929. And if you enjoyed the podcast, feel free to share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And subscribe today, because the best lawyers never stop learning.